Welcome to the Crystals, Clits, and Climate Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Pang, and this is where we explore the intersections of spirituality, sexuality, and sustainability. If you want to come with me, gather around and won't you see, we'll have fun in mystery. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Crystals, Clits, and Climate podcast. Your host, Hannah Pang here. I know it's been quite a while since we've recorded and shared an episode with you all, and it's so nice to be back. Thanks for tuning in again, and hope may- if we maybe we have some new listeners as well. If so, welcome to you too. Thanks for, for joining us. Just as a reminder, because Yep, we've been on a mini hiatus for a little bit. Crystals, Clits, and Climate podcast is where we explore the intersections of spirituality, sexuality, and sustainability. We usually have a slew of incredible experts and thought leaders across those topics, but today it's just me, and I'm back because we have some very exciting news to share with you all, and that is we have been asked by the environmental nonprofit Do the Green Thing to participate in an art exhibition exploring race and climate change. The exhibition is called The Color of the Climate Crisis, and it features 24 artists of color who explore the relationship between race and climate change. So very excitingly, we are one of those artists, which is so cool and a little bit unreal. So it's an online exhibition. Um, there will also be in-person showings, which is very cool and exciting as well. The first iteration of the physical exhibition has just launched at COP26 in Glasgow. And for any of you who don't know, COP26 is basically an annual gathering of world leaders to discuss the climate crisis and what we're going to do about it. So they're there to kind of negotiate actions and commitments, hopefully come out with some really strong and ambitious commitments and actions from governments. So, you know, fingers crossed that they make good decisions for our collective future and the existence of it. But Do the Green Thing is an environmental social initiative that uses creativity to combat the climate crisis. And it was actually created by the branding and design agency Pentagram. And basically every year, except for last year, they host an exhibition. So one that they did in 2019 was exploring um, patriarchy and the climate crisis. Um, And as I said, this year was about race and climate change. So I've known their team for a bit now. They knew about the Crystals, Clits, and Climate podcast, and they invited me to be an artist in this year's exhibition. And of course, the intersection and relationship between race and climate is a topic we've talked about a lot on the podcast. So this was a really exciting opportunity. And I was incredibly honored to be asked. It did take me a while to figure out what I was going to do for it, as I personally don't identify as an artist, but I realized I was asked for some reason, which is the podcast itself and the conversations that we've had on it. And our producer, Emma, reminded me of a little thing called the art of discourse, and that is our medium here. So we went for it. So we went back, we listened to our episodes that talked about race and how it impacts the systems and structures in our world and how those then foster environmentally unsustainable world. 
listening back through those episodes, for me, the one thing that really kept coming up or the thread that's appeared throughout them was that in our Western culture, we seemingly have a collective definition of what is successful and what is desirable. And success relates to money, to wealth, to the accumulation of things, to be higher up in this perceived hierarchy. And I realized that all relates to the external things that we need. And then being desirable is then who we need to be. And historically, this has meant being thin, being tall, and being white. And the more desirable you are, the more access to these or those success signals you'll have. And the thing about these success signals is that they're often, they often mean creating a lot of waste, using up resources, exploiting others. And so these activities have a clear connection to the climate crisis. And these definitions of what, what is successful and what is desirable are singular. So we have collectively agreed that this is what success means and this is what being desirable means. And to me, having one singular vision or definition of what is right is kind of a colonialist mindset or way of thinking. And I say this because that mindset where you think your way is the right way and it doesn't even cross your mind that another way would be possible or good or okay or better or that it's like someone else can do something different and that's okay. You think that everyone should be doing it your way. That's how I think about a colonialist mindset, having that singular understanding of something. And so this was the thread that was reflected across a lot of our episodes, all in slightly different ways, but this was kind of the the theme or the thesis coming out of these conversations. So the piece that I've created summarizes this, and I did actually make a physical piece. I technically did go to two design schools. So what I've done is put this kind of summary statement in the center and then keywords I've drawn lines and and pulled out a further explanation of it. So the central thesis statement is that the internalized colonialist perception of desirability and success has created the climate crisis. And under internalized, it says, when a belief or idea becomes intertwined with our identity or views, and we are no longer able to see it objectively. Under colonialist, it says, a mindset or approach where one believes there's only one right way, leaving them unable to comprehend any other option. Desirability, what we collectively agree to want and deem to be optimal. Success, is the individual accomplishment of a collectively agreed aim or purpose. Then under created, I've said the underlying root that sparks our behavior, norms, and structures. And then the climate crisis is the result of our culture's stark disconnection from the planet and misunderstanding of our relationship with it. So that's what the physical piece says and because the statement and the kind of the thing around it is all about our internalized definitions of success and what is desirable i've put the summary statement on a mirror as a way to kind of prompt the viewer or the audience to reflect on their own beliefs as they're interacting with it and funnily enough as soon as i had this idea i found a mirror on the street down the road from me that someone else was giving away so i took it as a sign that this was meant to be, this was the idea that I needed to move forward with. 
Um, so I had, you know, manifested a mirror and of course, always great to recycle a mirror so it doesn't end up in landfill and it has reached its, you know, its next life purpose now. And it's currently in a gallery in Glasgow. So I'm sure it did not have that as a goal for itself previously, but look at it now. Anyways, so I've created this physical piece that synthesizes the conversations that we've had, but of course I also wanted to feature the conversations themselves since that is the core art of Crystal's Clits and Climate. So our incredible podcast editor and producer, Emma Love, she pulled together clips from our podcast episodes with Joycelyn Longden, Lusungu Kayani, Sadie Sinner, Elena Green, Sachi Brewster, and Leila Sadagi. So if you haven't listened to those entire episodes yet, I would really recommend that you do, or if you feel compelled to go back and listen to them if you already have. It is really some incredible pieces of wisdom and insight that we had in those conversations. And it was and yeah, really nice to go back and, and revisit them. What we've pulled together is an incredible compilation of quotes from those conversations, and they support kind of the summary statement on this physical piece. And it really did just make me so incredibly grateful to everyone that we've had on the podcast, the incredible and meaningful and insightful conversations that we've had, everything that our guests were open to contributing through their personal experiences, through their own thoughts and explorations, through their areas of expertise really is, yeah, incredible everything that people have shared on here. And of course, thank you to you all for listening and absorbing that and sharing the episodes with, you know, your friends and family and discussing them and digesting them and all that stuff. Really unbelievable. So thank you so much for for supporting us this whole way. So you can listen to this accompanying audio on our website, crystalsclitzclimate.com, as well as it's linked to in the digital exhibition. But if you keep listening to this episode, it is here as well, so please stay tuned. The physical exhibition is in Glasgow, October 31st to November 2nd. It'll be coming to London in the spring and then later in the year to New York City. So thank you, thank you again to Joycelyn, Lusungu, Sadie, Alana, Zachi, and Leila for their incredible, insightful contributions to the podcast. To Emma Love, our producer and editor, for working her magic to create this beautiful audio piece. To Do the Green Thing for inviting us in the first place to participate in this exhibition. And again, to you, our listeners, for keeping us going and being with us still. And again, massive welcome to anyone who is new to our community. Welcome. So without further ado, here is the accompanying audio to the piece for the Color of the Climate Crisis exhibition. If you just start with, I'm not sure. Injustices that were going on all around the world. The majority of people who are experiencing the effects of environmental degradation or climate change or loss of species biodiversity are BIPOC people. 
for black people, indigenous people, people of color, our stories, our history is so different that it won't look the same as our white peers. And that's where the decolonizing comes from. When I kind of started to explore and learn more about my history and my heritage, I kind of lost the love for the environmental space because that also mirrored the conservative, the white and the privileged. And I felt like there was no space for me there. It stems from a bit of a colonialist mindset that there's one right way to do things. The ways in which colonial thoughts and and now neo-colonial action are playing out in our community under the guise of sustainability is something that I really want to make people aware of. Industry looks so white. For a lot of people who aren't white, it looks like, oh, okay, that's not for me but it's almost sort of like the system is made to divide and conquer. A lot of people are now saying, well, in Africa, we've always had the circular economy. It just hasn't been called the circular economy. The system is already there, so there's like a paradigm shift that needs to happen, a mental paradigm shift. The superstructures of white supremacy, patriarchy, and all of the other forms of oppression, and there are many. That intersectionality wasn't there. If we don't have intersectionality, people feel people feel like they don't belong and people feel like they are not welcome in a space. But I think only 3% of environmental professionals identify as non-white, which means that the industry is 97% white. Intersectional, and it's also recognizing that oneself is tied to how their environment is um either being beneficial to them or is taking away from them. Mm-hmm. And divide us from each other and divide us also from ourselves in how we actually feel. Exploit and to extract and to maintain a certain kind of chokehold style power. Yeah. Um, oppressive power. One for women, one for people of color, how we're taught to ignore how uncomfortable it can feel for us. And we assume that this is, you know, oh, everyone else must be feeling this way as well, but not always recognizing or or considering the connection. You know, some of these things sound so pragmatic, but I think it's like having conversations with the right people at the table. To decolonize their minds, to be critical about the world that we live in, where we came from, and who said what. What is community looking like? and? Where do I personally fit into this? Whitewashed, greenwashed, privileged, expensive lifestyle, which was what I felt that the environmental community was. Globally, beyond Africa, but globally, I read that 61% of the global economy is informal. This sector exists and we need to support it rather than try to dismantle it. Narrative around like environmentalism and conservation how society has positioned it is that it has to be through the perspective of white people. An environmentalist doesn't have to be someone who buys certain things and consumes certain things. Mm-hmm. But if we're able to establish the roles that BIPOC people already have within this space, it makes it easier for more people to come into the space knowing that they are already practicing these types of behaviors at home. Indigenous people around the world are environmentalists. My ancestors and indigenous people around the world have been fighting and working for this for way longer. It stems from a bit of a colonialist mindset that there's one right way to do things. Without proper knowledge of where we've come from, 
we will just continue to make the same mistakes. We are seeing so many patterns repeat themselves in the name of sustainability, in the name of climate solutions. So by going through like this heteronormative male expectation for how every part of the supply chain is operating, you're essentially not evaluating the problem in its full capacity. To a lot of people, the interconnectedness of social justice, racial justice and climate justice are, are not obvious. Before you even view it as sexuality, is sort of like who is the most acceptable person, I guess. And then that leads on to sort of beauty as well as sexual desire, how you're viewed by other people and also how you view yourself. Systemic hierarchy, patriarchy situation. But in that moment, that's when I know that these feelings were designed to keep me feeling small. If something's more encapsulated, I mean, that's kind of one of the white supremacy things, right? Is let's encapsulate it, exactly. let's tell a particular one, you know, kind of linear story about it, and then you can, and then it can be consumable, and that consumption can operate in particular ways, and the way that it operates under white supremacy is to maintain the status quo. If we're looking at the structures that society puts on us, Sexuality isn't yours if you're black. We need to basically redistribute and re, um, reclaim the narrative of bodies of colour. And when we do this, we'll be able to build better communities because we're handing back the agency. And it became this element of trying to identify myself and position myself within this space that has so often um, extorted and oppressed um, black and brown bodies. Really and truly, history does underpin a lot of the decisions that happen today. Because the first thing is, you know, the conditioning is to sort of remain silent and complicit. And why we still have so many laws that are made by people who are long since dead. With undertones that inform our society and, and you know, what we experience today of this sexualization of black bodies. And that comes with accountable world history. So understanding that each time you dress in that 1950s aesthetic and you say that you love it so much, but what actually was that for the women who really wore that mm. at the time of wearing it? If we look even sort of historically, especially of the sexualization of black bodies, especially black women's bodies, you know, well, she looks like a grown woman, so we're going to treat her like that to right through to the criminal justice system because there's this inherent sexualization of them as young black women and girls. And this then goes to the extreme of even black men, you know, of the size of a penis and how it's assumed. Like, that's this, this is sort of constant historical. One year at Pride in London, there were no black lesbians booked to perform on the cabaret stage. And I just really, um, it didn't sit well with me because it actually gave a false equivalence. Narrative is it. Our narratives inspire us to be leaders and to innovate. It's so important that the stories we read, the stories that we read to our children, do reflect who, who they are as well. Hearing the stories starting to understand the ways that my entire approach to spiritual practice had been encoded by white supremacist patriarchy and beginning to, to stand in a resistance to that and understand that the wisdom that I'm looking for, that I, my heart really longs for, 
is actually not strongly present in many of the frames that call themselves spiritual practice frames. But I think viewing myself as connected to the environment and connected to others makes myself navigating this space so much easier because I find my reason to belong. Every time I stand in my power, when I feel good about myself, when I feel good about my body, when I feel sexy, when I express my sexual energy, I feel like I'm standing in defiance of systemic oppression. The body never lies, it's too innocent. If I'm struck and hurt and upset by the way that my ancestors and people before me were treated, there's no way that I can stand and watch that happen in real time for people now who will be future generations' ancestors. And, and also the level of, of sorrow. It was on one hand, it was rage. On another hand, it was also the profundity of my sorrow. Yes, we can read books and yes, we can watch webinars and take courses and stuff but the real work is like I think this self-observation of where you fit in the system. There's time for the other discussions again if they want they can book in a decolonizing workshop and we will talk about it in a very serious way and we will talk about the paper bag test. These conversations are very messy and if we don't have the messy conversations the hard conversations the difficult conversations all we're going to do is uphold the same structures that keep people oppressed today and in the past and move them forward just with a different energy source. Privilege, realizing how you oppress and also how you are oppressed. I also know how much the suffering that I'm kind of campaigning against with my social justice is inflicted by issues to do with climate change. What we can do is say black people are incredible the Pan-Asian community is so beautiful. Do you actually know how many countries are in there? You keep saying Asian, mm -hmm. like you know what you're talking about, but who are you actually talking about? You know, um, uplifting the people that we are centering. You uncondition yourself. Yeah. From the beginning, from a more spiritual sense. I mean, even like the African terminology and discourse of Ubuntu, you know, I am because you are, and you are because I am, like we exist mm -hmm. with each other. Recognize that we are all part of this thing together and we're all made of you know the same stardust so when we hand back the narratives of people to tell us themselves who they are to tell us for example myself what it means to me to be black you know yeah let's stop making these assumptions and just get it right by handing back the agency the people who tell us about it to the people who are right now and we need the people who can see the world in a different way because it I mean, in general, just kind of feels like we've gotten to this tipping point where everyone's like, this doesn't work anymore. Like, we need a new way. I want to gift you rest because our ancestors didn't have rest. Some of them never got a day off in their whole lives. Currently holding all of the creative vitality of humanity in a particular pattern. 